Good morning. My name's Chris. It's good to be with you here today. Uh, whether this is where you call church home, tuning in online, or visiting. Uh, if you are visiting, we hope you come back. We brought out uh, the big guns, sending the kids to a parade with the cuteness going on, leading the adults in a little procession. Uh, today we are continuing our series, uh, the Encountering, uh, Encounters with Jesus series, uh, on this uh, Palm Sunday. And we already read uh, the Luke account of this passage, but we're also going to read the Matthew account. So see if you could spot any differences. So I'm going to be reading from Matthew 21, uh, verses 1 through 17. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. And tie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the, on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we thank you for this day and just the significance that it is uh, in the work that you did for this world and uh, what you did for us. And so, Father, I pray that you would just send your spirit here this morning uh, to, to teach us, to instruct us, and to, to bring your word alive in our, in our lives today. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. After years and years and years of waiting, it's finally happening. Over the years, there have been moments where it looked like all hope was lost, Momentum fizzling out, or opposition squashed. With each failed attempt at triumph, desperation was deepening, which became rocket fuel for the next run. Filled now with deeper emotion and, and deeper tenacity. But not everyone felt that way on this day. Some had grown full of doubt and cynicism, when they heard the early murmurings of the crowd, they responded scoffing at the delirium of the people who would let themselves get punked again. Fool me one time, and all that. How long would even these resilient souls be able to hold out for? When would the mob mentality kick in and they also drive from the suburbs to Chicago to stand shoulder to shoulder with the rest of the fans? It's 2016. <laughs> the Chicago Cubs are about to beat the Cleveland Indians to win the World Series for the first time since 1908. There should be a picture there somewhere. Although 
I was incredibly ignorant to the significance of what was actually going on. Things were crossing my mind, like how many times do they actually have to win or lose against each other before they win or lose? Why is it called a World Series? It's just one country, guys. It's big, I get it, but how come they're not out of breath? Things like that fill my mind when I watch baseball. But there I am, 25 yards from the front of Wrigley Field, as the Cubs win the World Series in like 100 years. In Chicago, it was electric that night. I have a video, I forgot to do the video, but it was just sea of people, shoulder to shoulder. Strangers were hugging, people were jumping up and down. The whole night, cars were just honking the whole time. I mean, that happens usually in Chicago, but it was just in joy. It was like, they're, they're honking, go Cubs, go, that song, yeah, it was good. It was, good. It was unreal. Uh, it felt like the ground was moving like an earthquake. Have you ever uh, been part of something like that? A celebration that is just so emotion-filled? Maybe it was another big sports event, or uh, a Macy's Day parade, or a pep rally at school. Well, eh, pep rallies at school were never really as good as the movies, but <laughs> the idea of a pep rally at school. If you have, then you have an idea of, and a sense of what the city of Jerusalem was like on this day around 30 AD. Jesus had been making his way up to the Mount of Olives and down into Jerusalem. Crowds had been gathering the whole time, growing and growing. They were seeing his miracles, they were hearing his teaching, and seeing the authority that he had. There were those that would join the crowd that were in Jesus, they saw their hopes, their long-awaited hopes of a prophet, of a king, um, of a new leader. And they're all here in Jerusalem, shoulder to shoulder. And what's more, they're, they're all there for the Passover, so it's even more people than would usually be there. Not willing to miss what's about to unfold. Something is special is happening here. It says in verse 10 that the whole city was stirred up. For Cubs fans, the memory of 1908 became a tangible motivator of hope. And for those in first century Palestine, it was the prophecies of the scriptures. In, in the Matthew account, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Sorry, in Zechariah. Coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And then in Isaiah, Isaiah 62, 11, it says, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. These are all generational memories built in to the people of Israel. All signs are pointing to it. There is a king returning to the holy city. Since the exile over 400 years earlier, the people of Israel have been waiting for a ruler who would come in the name of the Lord of their own people. But in, in that time, they were constantly being ruled by others. They were ruled by the Persians and then the Greeks. 
They had a small period of freedom that was filled with infighting and civil war, and then the Romans took them over. Finally, it's time maybe for our king to come, our Messiah to come, to overthrow the government of the time, and we will once again be ruled by our own people in our own land. The trouble is, there is already a king in Jerusalem, Caesar. Trouble is, there is already an, a religious authority of God's representatives in the synagogues, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. Suffice it to say, not everyone was happy in the crowd with this Jesus coming. Where would you be standing in this crowd? Would you be laying down your outer garment to form a royal red carpet like they did for King Jehu? Or maybe you see yourself waving the palm branches that have been recently trimmed from the city of palms known as Jericho. Crying out the words in Psalm 118, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These, the crowd's chanting certainly gives Jerusalem a parade-like feel. But actually, there are a couple of interesting parts to this story that don't fit the bill here. Firstly, what's Jesus doing riding a donkey? The donkey doesn't exactly communicate the message that the people are trying to send to the religious establishment and to the government. It's not a chariot. Why not at least use a horse or, or something noble for our hoped-for king, our hopeful liberator? And where is he going? He's on his way down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, but he's not going off towards Pilate's house. He's going to the temple. We need to use this momentum while we have it. We need to go to Pilate. Come on, let's get our land back. Come on, let's take control back. I've got a couple pictures to show you guys. What do you make of that? All right, turn to your neighbor. What does that look like to you? There are right answers. All right, go ahead and put up the second photo. Oh, what about that one? Go ahead, turn to your neighbor. What do you think that one is? I fibbed. There are no right answers. These photos are meaningless. Has anyone heard of the Rorschach ink blot test? Yes. A couple of AP psychology people in the house. These photos are simply ink dripped onto paper and then folded in half to create symmetry. They are part of a test uh, developed by a psychologist uh, known as a projective test. The gist is that a patient is shown one of these photos. You're not patients to me, I showed you the photos, but they're shown one of these photos, and then that person uh, imposes their own meaning. So when you said it looks like this, that's imposing meaning onto the image. 
And then the psychologist, they assess how the subject projected the meaning onto the photo, they analyze that, and it actually reveals something about the subject, how they think, how they view the world, how they interpret the things around them. So based on your answers, you might need to uh, have some conversations and pack those on your own time, though. Okay, keep that test in the back of your mind, all right? This story of the triumphal entry is just chock full of meaning from start to finish. In its own right, Jesus is beginning, we've talked about already today, he's beginning his last week on earth, his last week of ministry before his death and his resurrection. His entire life and ministry has been about doing God the Father's will and through his miracles, through his teaching, through his interactions, is showing what the kingdom of God looks like, what he's bringing to the world. Jesus lived his life knowing full well that ultimately the way that he would fulfill his Father's will to complete the task that he was specifically sent here to do, he would end up being portrayed by those closest to him, be falsely accused, be beaten, be ultimately crucified by those that he had came to save. This level of forsakenness was worth it to Jesus because he knew that through his death on the cross, through taking the punishment and death deserved to us because of our sin, our selfishness, and raising from the dead, overcoming the, the final say that the devil had on us, he would be creating a way back into a right relationship with God for those who believed in him. It's heavy stuff. It's full of meaning this week. And Jesus is still a handful of days away from those events occurring, but he knows that they are coming. He had predicted his death multiple times to his disciples and how he was going to die. And can you see the irony as he approaches Jerusalem in light of this week on this side of history that the same crowds that he's proceeding towards who are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, those same people in like four days' time are crying out, crucify, crucify. Just imagine that for a moment. That what Jesus could have been feeling like in that moment. Having so much love for the people, seeing their smiling faces, seeing their jubilant cries, but knowing that soon that they would be spitting on him and shouting for him to die. It's almost worse than if they're hostile to begin with. And that, that image, that picture, it's overwhelming. Uh, the obedience of Jesus, how far he is willing to go for us, for you. So what, what was the shift in the crowd between today and in four days' time? What caused them to change their cry from Hosanna to crucify? And how can we live lives to make sure we don't do the same? The crowd in the story half gets it. They're quoting passages that are messianic in focus, 
They're paying homage to the one who is truly king. But just like in the inkblot test, they're projecting another meaning onto Jesus of what they want to see him be for them. They wanted him to be their Messiah, their king, yes. But one of their own fashioning and making. One commentator, Leon Morris, says that they didn't see Jesus as a suffering servant Messiah. They saw Jesus, in Jesus, a political Messiah. They projected that meaning onto him and the momentum surrounding him. This is the one that's going to liberate us from Rome. This is the one that's going to lead us into, into God's promises for his people. It's half right, you know. It was the natural inclination stemming from a situation where there is this really unpopular Roman occupation, patriotic souls, and then a rallying cry. For the people of Jerusalem, they had tried to marry Jesus, ultimately, with their own agenda. Jesus plus political insurrection. Jesus plus idolatry. But Jesus isn't concerned with following the agenda of those who smile at him. He doesn't add on to what the Father's will is for him. Jesus is here to save the souls of us, of the lost, not to become Caesar. Learning from Jesus then, the takeaway for us is that we will never be able to truly worship both God and our idols or our blank. Should be a, yeah. We'll never be able to truly worship God and whatever else it is. Jesus did not tell the crowd to be silent, but he made it clear for him that faithfulness went in a different direction. Literally, he goes into the temple and begins a week full of, to some, awe-inspiring, to others, rage-provoking acts. He doesn't go to Herod or to Pilate to perform a coup. Jesus' number one concern, both then and now, is obeying the will of the Father. It's worship. It's obedience. In our life, the things that pull us away from that obedience are known as idols. And idols in the first century context were you know, literal figures that received the worship of the people. And maybe in our specific context, we don't have figurines of fertility gods or idols of Artemis, but there are things in our life that receive our worship other than God. And usually idols can actually be things that are good. Yeah, they, they can be good things that have been elevated from their proper place to taking priority in our lives. To being ultimately worshipped. That worship occurs when whatever it is begins to receive the priority of our attention, the first fruits of our energy, our affections, or becoming something that we 
yet a feeling of trust and security in of our well-being other than God. And we all do this. We all have these idols in our lives. So what are the, some of the things in your life that receive your worship other than God? What are those things that are good in their proper place but have become something more over time? Is it, is it an idol of convenience, of comfort, of pleasure? Is it an idol of managing people's perceptions of you? How you appear in person, on, on social media, in church? Have we made an idol out of getting our own way, always being in control, never considering the thoughts or above the thoughts of others above our own? Have we made an idol out of a person or a relationship? Or the idea of a relationship? What about a family? Have we made idol out of family? It can look like constant anxiousness and fear that something bad may happen. Overbearing, overprotecting. Nurturing family, but not nurturing relationship with God. Prioritizing the concerns of the family over the concerns of the things that God is explicitly calling you to do. Could be putting all our hope in a, in a, um, a worldly cause. Or perhaps the idolatry in our lives is like the crowd taking Jesus or taking his word and misusing them to our own personal or political agendas. Maybe some of these hit home more than others, and there's a lot more, but we all have idols in our lives, period. Things that can be good and are good in their proper place. And if you don't think you do, Ask your spouse or ask your parents or ask your best friend and they'll let you know what they are. And it's not a fun thing to think about, but it's really important to think about as a believer. To have the humility to recognize and point out the idols that we have made, the things that we have elevated beyond their proper place. So that once we've, they've been recognized, once they've been called out, we can, we can repent from them, we can turn from them, we can create patterns or structures of accountability in our lives so that we can keep idols out. Because when the idols of worship, the objects of our affection, are removed, we are freed to worship God more fully. With more of our energy, with more of our affections, to do so with whole hearts. I'm going to throw a hypothetical situation at you. Okay? Have you ever felt the tension of uh, un uh, what's it called? unspoken expectations or uncommunicated expectations? If not, here's a little example. Say it's Saturday morning and you've had a long week at work, 
and it's your day off. And you're ready just to do absolutely nothing. PJs stay on the whole day. And you're excited about it. That's what you're going to do. That's your plan. But say your spouse or your roommate or your family had other ideas. Your spouse wants to spend the day or start off with coffee. Then we'll go brunch. Then we'll sneak in a little hike. And then we'll go to lunch. And then we'll do this. They've been looking forward all week for that day off to do all these things that they don't get to do during the week. What's the result of such a situation? I see some chuckles. Civil war. 45 minutes tops before there's a full-on argument going on because of non-communicated expectations of not being on the same page. I saw some heads turning. I'm not going to tell you who. <laughs> Add that to the inkblot test. Have you ever experienced something like that? You're like, yeah, I remember. It was Saturday, April 9th, 2022. <laughs> oh, no. The crowd had very different ideas of what kind of Messiah Jesus should be for them. They're not on the same page. And the conflict that eventually boils over, as a result, the crowd turns away from Jesus as he knew they would. Unable to serve both Jesus and their own idea for what he should be, their own agenda. In your hearts, do you, and thinking of those idols in our lives that we make, do you feel a tension? Do you feel a conflict? Where you've been trying to serve two masters, God and... What has been taking that priority of your worship. The things in our lives that will never be able to give us what we hope they will. That will never, that you will never receive back from what you put in. And has that left you feeling empty? Do you feel a conflict within yourself that you continually suppress or are you hurting because of misplaced trust and hope in things other than God? Do you feel like two people in one body? If that's you today, it's time to let God be the sole focus of the worship in your life. It's time to turn back to Him, to go where He's going, not where you want Him to. There is going to be prayer at the end of the service over here. And that would be a great time to, to talk to someone about something that has been growing in your life that shouldn't be there. To confess that. And whether that's not this morning, or I encourage you to talk to about that to someone. You will never be able to worship both God and whatever it is.
We began today getting a feel for a level of celebration that was going down in Jerusalem. And it's strange to, to see that celebration and knowing the events that happen. But even if the crowd doesn't exactly grasp what's going on, what Jesus' mission is all about, their celebration is a foretaste of the celebration to come. In Revelation 7-9, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus is truly King. Jesus is truly worth worshiping and celebrating. And although the day is still coming when we will physically be in the presence of God in the throne room, worshiping Him, if we have placed our faith in Jesus, confessing that He is Lord of our lives, forsaking our own interests, our own selfishness, deciding to follow Him, then we are able to start celebrating His triumph, causing a holy ruckus right now. This week, as we remember all the things that encompass Jesus' last days of ministry on earth, let's do so with joy and celebration because we know that for us, our King has come and He is coming again. Will you pray with me? Uh, Father, we give you thanks. Um, for your love for us, to, for how far you are willing to go for us. And Lord, I just pray that um, as we go out this week, uh, that this Holy Week would be, uh, have a significance to us that it hasn't had before, Lord. That we would learn to love you more because of it. That we would love our neighbor more because of it, Lord. And uh, we just ask that we would, um, uh, we would bless you in all the things that we're doing this week, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.